Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2008, director Jon Favreau and star Robert Downey Jr. launched a cinematic universe unlike anything the film industry had ever seen. In 2019, we go all Chris Stapleton with our first Tennessee whiskey. The film is Iron Man. The whiskey is George Dickel number 12. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2008 film Iron Man. Brad, what do you think about when I say the words Iron Man? The moment you say them, I just hear that long riff on the guitar. That like droning intro to Black Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much that. We're going to get copyright claimed just on that. Yeah, I mean, when I think about Iron Man now... It's hard to divorce this movie from, like, the 20 other Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And so when we sat down to watch this again, I had to kind of shut off everything that I knew about the Avengers, about, you know, Infinity War and Thanos now, and try to put myself in the place that I was in in 2008 when this was kind of Marvel's big test for whether or not this idea of a cinematic universe was going to work. Yeah, and the funny thing for me was that I, for the longest time, until I watched this again... I genuinely didn't even think about this as the start of the Marvel Cinematic Universe Mm -hmm. because in my head, I don't know if I'd like conflated the two, but I thought that the Incredible Hulk came out first. Oh, interesting. And I was I was interested because I looked back and I was like, man, I am sure that I saw Incredible Hulk in theaters way before I saw Iron Man in theaters. But I realized that they came out within one month of each other. Within a month, really? Within a month. I think Iron Man came out in June and Incredible Hulk came out in July. Wow, that's crazy. So I probably did see the Hulk first. Sure. But so in my mind, that was always the first one that didn't do so well. Yeah. And then Iron Man was the one that really set the bar for the rest of the universe. See, and I always have trouble like divorcing it from uh, The Dark Knight because it came out the same summer as The Dark Knight. Uh, So you had Marvel and DC going at each other. Yeah. And I, I mean... It's never going to be fair to compare anything to The Dark Knight because it's right. just it's so rooted in reality and the way Nolan constructs that movie. You know, I watched The Dark Knight and then I watched Iron Man later. Right. And I was always like, OK, The Dark Knight is superior. And I still think that. Yeah. But what Marvel was trying to do is something completely different. And it's not quite fair to compare it yeah. to The Dark Knight. So, Brad, why don't we explain the plot of Iron Man? Well, see, the funny thing is, I feel like every human being in America has seen it. Sure. So I don't feel like I need to do this. Right. But. But we should. For it's po- a service for that we offer. Our, yes. Yeah. So Iron Man, as a film, is about a rich playboy billionaire. Um, he's the heir to the Stark fortune. And Who are the Starks? The Starks. Like on Game asked. of Thrones? Yes. Okay. So... Rich playboy billionaire, heir to the Stark Empire. The Starks were weapons manufacturers throughout World War II and beyond. 
And the the more you learn about Tony, he truly is a genius. Uh, but he is captured while doing a weapons presentation in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And they are, the terrorists are trying to force him to build a weapon of mass destruction. And instead of doing that, he creates this arc reactor technology. He puts it into his heart and he creates the Iron Man suit, which is a personal suit of body armor that you use to kill lots and lots and lots of people. <laughs> sure. So he escapes. They take him back. He decides that he no longer wants to make weapons, that his company shouldn't make weapons anymore, that they should help people. So Obadiah Stain is the CEO of the company. It's been Tony's, he's been Tony's friend since they were, you know, Tony was a child. And he turns into the main villain who is trying to keep the company, not only making money off selling weapons to the U.S. and their allies, but also to their enemies. Right. He's dealing on both sides of the table. Um, I think that's a good summary. So that, yeah. Yeah. And action ensues, right? And action ensues. How many times do you think that you've seen Iron Man? Yeah, so I've probably seen the film five, six, maybe seven times. Yeah, I'm probably about the same as you. This is one of my favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. I think it still holds up. For sure. I To to get my Marvel take early on out of the way, I struggle with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I really loved it at the start. I loved Captain America and Iron Man. I loved the first Avengers, Thor... And after a while, it felt like they were all the same movie done over and over. Yeah, it's definitely a formula now. And I I think I hit my point of frustration when Ant-Man came out. Mm -hmm. Because that's just a superhero that I do not care about. At all. And, you know, you had Ant-Man and then you had, like, Doctor Strange. And I felt like they really started to get repetitive. And with the the even more recent ones, like Captain Marvel or um, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mm -hmm. it's like you have to see this. To get crucial information about what's going to happen in Endgame. Right. And I don't necessarily want to watch a two-hour movie just to get info on Endgame. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I So I actually kind of stopped watching the franchise after Winter Soldier. Oh, Which is still, I looked it up the other day, that's still ten movies in. Yeah, that's only so like I, half of the movies. I know it's only half, but it, like that's still ten movies sure. in. I felt like I got a, got a good glimpse of it. I've seen, and since... Since Winter Soldier, I've seen Ragnarok and Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. Okay. So I've seen a few of the post-Winter Soldier movies. But I just, every time I think about getting back into them, and, you know, I have some friends who are huge fanboys of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I just, there's something in me that's kind of like, do I really want to do this? Yeah. And I, I just have no desire to get back into it. But watching Iron Man again, I was reminded of why I loved the franchise as much as I did. Sure. And it was difficult because... Iron Man set the formula for the rest of the franchise. And with the Incredible Hulk and Iron Man coming out within a month of each other, they're two very different movies. Have you have you seen the Incredible Hulk? The Ed Norton one? I feel like I have, but I don't remember anything from it. Yeah. So I actually watched it again recently, probably a month or two before I watched Iron Man. And it really provided a good contrast because the film direction was different. Yeah. Like the way they filmed it, the sound, the just all of it was different. It was still a superhero movie. But it just wasn't very good. Yeah. Like, sure. I would probably give it about a four or five. Okay. Uh, yeah, decent movie. It was okay. Right. But when you compare it to Iron Man, Iron Man's a really good movie. Yeah. And the thing with Iron Man is kind of weird because Marvel was banking on this being successful. So it really did have a lot of weight that it had to carry. But it's fun to go back and watch a superhero movie where the stakes are kind of lower. Right. Where 
it didn't seem like the end of the universe was about to happen and the weight of 20 movies wasn't being borne by it yeah. the way that you, like Infinity War does. It was nice to just be able to watch an origin story where there's one big bad that he has to defeat and that's all there is to it. I mean, it really is this sort of transitional movie between like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies yeah. and what you get later in the MCU. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man because his first Spider-Man, which I believe came out in 2000 or 2001. I think it was 02, yeah. 02. So those movies were like my introduction into the superhero universe. Okay. And I think that they still stand up. So oh, there are still people who think two. Spider-Man 2 is the best superhero movie of all time. Yeah. And and I, I don't know if I would go that far. I, I liked one a little bit better. I did too. But... Those movies, I think, introduced the new era, mm-hmm. you know, the 21st century into superheroes. Yeah. In a way that we had never seen before. Sure. And so I and Iron Man, if Spider-Man was the start of this era, I think Iron Man kicked off the golden age. Yeah, of absolutely. This era, which truly has been the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So let's talk a little bit about the development of this movie. So. Mm-hmm. Iron Man had actually been a character that had been in development for quite a while. And the funny thing is, we're going to loop back around to some stuff we've talked about in prior episodes. So way back in 1996, Nicolas Cage was attached to play Iron Man. (laughs) Which is crazy because he was also around that time he was doing tests for Superman with, I think, Joel Schumacher. Which I don't want to see either one. Have you ever seen the photos of him as Superman? No. So he had like grown his hair long and stuff for Con Air. And he was like I... doing screen tests for Superman with like a mullet. It's the, fu- <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever seen. Um, So he's doing screen tests for Superman, but he's also in talks to develop Iron Man. Obviously, it fell through. But we had just talked about him Thankfully, last month. Right? It fell through. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> we had just talked about him last month because they had been at some point developing a Howard Hughes biopic. Right. For Nicolas Cage. So he was all over the place in the mid 90s. Yeah. Later on. Tom Cruise actually commissioned a script to be written so that he could play Iron Man. And one of the co-authors of the script, none other than Stan Lee. Really? And that movie did not get made either. Huh. The funny thing is, I feel like if it was a Tom Cruise movie, he wouldn't have actually had like the boosters that he flies he just with. Ran he would have just been running everywhere. <laughs> I still would have been okay with that. Oh, 100%. So... At this point, though, John Favreau has kind of kicked off his directing career. He's had a couple big hits. He's actually just coming off of, I think, Elf was like the last movie that he had made at this point. And so a little fun fact, if you don't know who John Favreau is, he's the bodyguard in Iron Man. Happy. Yeah. 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 He gave himself a, a role in the movie. But yeah. people knew him from the 90s when he was, oh, uh, what's the movie called? Swingers? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he had been a pretty popular actor and then transitioned into directing. Mm-hmm. He was given kind of carte blanche and free range to cast this movie. Then he finally decided to give it to Robert Downey Jr. Which was a very controversial choice when you're choosing to kick off your massive 20 year movie plan with Robert Downey Jr. Who at that point had been in U.S. Marshals. Well, Robert Downey Jr. had been around since the 80s, but he had this really, really deep, severe drug addiction that had taken him kind of way out of Hollywood. And so this was his Really, his big comeback. He had made a movie a few years earlier called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that uh, John Favreau had really enjoyed. And based on that, he offered him an audition. But Robert Downey Jr. was not the only person that was in talks to play Iron Man. Uh, Favreau had originally talked to Hugh Jackman about it. Really? But Hugh Huge Jackman had Jackman. already... man. <laughs> he thought, you know, I've already been established as Wolverine. It'd be weird for me to be another superhero. Yeah. So he was uh, considering Clive Owen for the role. Huh. 
and also Sam Rockwell, who went on to appear in Iron Man 2. I don't know. I love Sam Rockwell. Yeah. I can't see him as Iron Man. Not at all. He invited Robert Downey Jr. to audition the same day that uh, Timothy Oliphant had come in to audition. Huh. Which I think would have been an interesting Iron Man. I don't know if I know enough about Timothy Timothy Oliphant. What has he been in? Have you seen The Office? Yeah. He plays Danny Cordray, the uh, oh, really attractive salesman. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would have bought him as Iron Man, though. Yeah, he... The thing about Robert Downey Jr., and I'm realizing that I've said this a few times in previous podcasts... And the more I say it, the more I realize I value it. He comes across so genuine. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, but his, like genuinely smug and yeah, genuinely arrogant. Right. But he really embodies that. But character. the genuine smugness and genuine arrogance leads you to believe him when he has a change of heart. Absolutely. And I think that's, and that's what I mean when he gives a genuine performance that he truly embodies the character. Like, I don't, I don't think that I'm looking at Robert Downey Jr. playing, I, you know, Tony Stark? I'm just watching Tony Stark. And it's really hard to toe that line of being a playboy and an arrogant person and not lose the audience. Yeah. Like, he's clearly an arrogant person, and yet we're still charmed by him, you know? And I think the interesting part about that, you brought up Batman earlier. Mm -hmm. In The Dark Knight, we get a few images of Bruce Wayne, the playboy, Mm -hmm. billionaire. And now that I think about it, I man, I feel like Robert Downey Jr. pulls off the playboy part better than Christian Bale. Oh, Christian sure. Bale might pull off the superhero part right. a little bit better than Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the rest of the cast, though. Is there anybody that sticks out to you, a performance that you want to talk about? I liked Gwyneth Paltrow. I So much. Dude, and, and the funny thing is, watching her character develop over the three Iron Man movies and into the Avengers movies, they don't give her much to do here. Yeah. And she's still, in my opinion, she's like stealing the show in some of these scenes. Yeah. They give her one of the, my favorite lines in the whole movie, too. About taking out the trash. Yes! <laughs> taking out the trash line is so good. I love Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. You've got Terrence Howard mm-hmm. playing Rhodey, who then becomes uh, War Machine right. in but, future movies. But Terrence Howard doesn't come back. He does not come back. Don Cheadle actually replaces him in the second movie. And it's like a big Hollywood sort of hush-hush rumor about why Terrence Howard got moved out. Okay. Um, there's conflicting arguments about it. Apparently, he was the highest paid person on this movie. Really? He was just coming off an Oscar nomination for Hustle and Flow. Okay. He was really in demand. Um, and they said that after the success of the first movie, his story is Marvel came to him for the sequel and kind of lowballed him and said, take it or leave it. This movie is going to be successful without you. Right. And he left it. And it has turned out to not be the wisest decision for his career. Yeah. Because Don Cheadle's now been in, like, what, five or six MCU movies. Yeah. And actually, for being honest, I like Don Cheadle's portrayal of So Rudy. much better. Yeah. Terrence Howard does not work for me in this movie. He, he was probably one of the few performances in this movie that felt kind of meh to me. Yeah. Like, he just, he was there. Right. But his, his inflection and the way he talked and the way he interacted with Tony, there was no chemistry, I felt like, between him and Robert. Not Downey at all. There was, like, no rapport there. And there really needed to be for you to care about War Machine at all in the next film. So, I want to talk for a second about Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Because I love Jeff Bridges. Uh-huh. He's a fantastic actor. Uh-huh. I don't know how I feel about him in this movie. I love him in this movie. He, I mean, he's, like, chewing scenery left and right. Like, they're, they're giving him free range to just be, like, the biggest villain. Yeah. And steal the show. Yeah. But, like, he's the bad guy from the first time you see him. Like, at the beginning of the movie, when they first show him at that reception. Right. I'm like, oh, that's the bad guy. 
Really? This bald guy giving like a weird glare at the stair or at the stage. He's the bad guy. Oh, I didn't pick up on that at all. The really? First time I watched it. No. Huh. I think at some point, I think it's after he escapes. I'm trying to think of when it is in the movie, but at some point I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, he's the one like blocking him out of the the st- the CEO meeting or yeah. the, the board meeting. Yeah, yeah. And all that. And I was like, oh, he's the one doing all this. And it was before they, you know, revealed it. Yeah. But it wasn't right away. See, I really liked what he was doing with the character up until that final scene. Uh-huh. And the last when, third when of the movie or whatever. The, when when they the final, yeah, when he gets in that Ironmonger suit. Yeah. I just it, the movie falls apart for me there, and really? you get like the Jeff Bridges doing a voice thing. Where, Tony, Tony. <laughs> and he, like it sounds like he's trying to sound big and bad. Yeah, get back here, Tony. It just none of that works for me. See, that's funny because that totally worked for me. No, yeah, I I was totally fine with that because in my mind that wasn't Jeff Bridges talking. That was him using like almost like a PA system to project his voice outside the. The machine, the sure. suit. Oh, that makes sense. So to me, it makes But I mean, sense Iron Man's voice suit. sounds normal. He just talks like uh, Tony it, Stark. It has a little bit of a mechanical... Yeah, I just... It, it was the like, get back here, Tony. Do you know what he sounds like, though? He sounds like the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> he, like, he sounds like he should be busting through a wall. I can oh, just see Tony. Yeah, Tony. <laughs> Tony's like, oh, no. Oh, no. What am I going to do? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come back here, Tony. All right, I want to ask a question about Jeff Bridges' character. Okay. So his name is Obadiah Stane, which, first of all, best name of all time. I was literally going to say that. That is a good villain name. Now, what exactly, and pun intended, I guess, but what is his endgame? Like, what? what's <laughs> Obadiah's plan? Because his whole, his whole character thing right. is that he wants a controlling share in the company. Right. And so he pays terrorists to kill Tony. Right. They don't do it. They fail. So he goes and kills all the terrorists. Right. Right. Then he comes back to the U.S. He files an injunction against Tony. Right. To gain control of the company. But we never actually really find out if the injunction went through. That's true. And so he just decides, I'm going to kill Tony. And yeah. But, like, why? Because, like, if if you're that powerful and you're able to hire a terrorist cell to kill someone. Right. Like, you can't get an assassin in the U.S. to do it. You have to go out yourself and very publicly fight with him. What assassin from what movie would you want to kill Tony Stark? I'm just saying, like, (laughs) if he can somehow keep quiet that he has an Afghani terror cell working for him, why would you decide as the CEO of this company to go out in public and, like, shoot him to death? What kind of, like, does he just think he's going to get away with it and then get control of the company and still be rich and not in jail? Bob. Maybe maybe he just thinks that that new technology is so lucrative that he'll just get away with it. Well, I mean, and he says that, and and as much as I say that facetiously a little bit, I think that it's true. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when you look at Obadiah's character arc, I think he kind of reaches a point of no return when he decides, you know what? Tony has given me his last golden egg. Hmm. Let's kill him off. This technology is going to change the world, and I'm going to become fantastically rich over it. Yeah. Not that he isn't already. And so I, I think that that's the point where... He just, yeah, he turns full villain mode. Yeah. And he doesn't care what the cost is to get what he wants. I get that. Please, do you mind? Have you seen these pictures? Huh? What's going Tony, on? Tony, Tony, you can't oh. afford to be this naive. You know, when I was naive before, when they said, here's a line, we don't cross it. This is how we do business. If we're double dealing under the table, are we? 
Let's take a picture. Come on. Picture time. Hey, who do you think locked you out? I was the one who filed the injunction against you. It's the only way I can protect you. It just seemed like he made some really huge jumps in logic. And I know that, again, I know it's a comic book movie. Yeah. But I think the bar has been raised so much on comic book movies in the last 10 years that we have to kind of make these critiques a little bit. Yeah. You know, like, I I really do think the last half of this movie just kind of falls off. The first hour of this movie is spectacular. The fact that they decided to start this movie with 45 minutes in an Afghani cave. Right. Blows my mind. Right. Like, you're talking about a big budget superhero movie. That is essentially just, a, you know, a, a war on terror film for its first third. I'm glad you brought that up because the performance of the Afghani doctor was so... Vincent, yeah. Good. He, I wrote in my notes, Vincent, the real MVP. The, truly. He's like, he's like, my favorite person in the whole movie. Gwyneth Paltrow is great. Yeah. I loved her as Pepper Potts. But Vincent was the best performance of the movie. I think so, too. And the only part of the movie where I actually felt emotion is yeah. when Vincent is dying and he tells Tony, basically, you know, don't waste your life on this. You know, yeah. I'm going to see my wife and, oh, man, that got me a little yeah, bit. No, yeah, no, that, that 100% got me. And that moment portrayed by Vincent Mm -hmm. made Tony's change of heart real. Yeah. If he hadn't performed as well in his role as an actor, I don't think we would have bought the change of heart when Tony comes back and says, look, like we are not selling weapons anymore until at the very least until we figure out how to stop double dealing. Yeah. And and you wouldn't have bought that unless you had that moment with Vincent. When Vincent dies in the cave and the rest of the terror group is outside the cave waiting for Tony to emerge it's my favorite like beat of the whole performance of Robert Downey Jr. Cause you see him like watch Vincent die and then you just see how pissed off he gets. And you're like, Oh, you know, something's coming now. Flamethrowers are coming now. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was kind of shocked at the level of violence in this movie. Yeah. Because I think like quote unquote Marvel violence has become a thing yeah. where people die, but there's no blood and they right. can just kind of get punched and then die. They're like stormtroopers. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's literally burning guys to death in this oh. movie. It's really violent. I, I think that the bloodless violence that Marvel has brought about, you can talk a lot of different ways about it. But in this movie, you definitely are seeing early era Marvel yeah. where they're still figuring out how they want to do violence in their movies. I respect this violence more, though. Yes. Because, you know, and I'm not going to be like the prudish guy that's like, don't take your kids to see this. But just because it says PG-13... Like, this is clearly a movie for grownups. Yeah. Like, this is not a movie that you should be taking a five-year-old to see. You know what I mean? And I feel like the same thing with Infinity War. I was actually in the theater, and there were, like, four-year-olds behind me, and they were freaking traumatized by it. You should not be taking a four-year-old to see Infinity War. And I think that, like, the bloodless violence of Marvel is influencing parents to think that it's okay. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. And I think that one of the problems with Marvel violence is that it desensitizes you to real violence. Exactly. Because you have this sense of like, oh, well, you know, th- there's no blood and gore, so it's okay. Yeah. And I think it, it does kind of teach this lesson of like, well, violence is okay as nobody's, you know, bloodied up. Well, and especially with that early suit that he makes, that thing is just, that is a weapon of mass destruction. That, and that, yet, it's the shoddiest construction of it. Like, if you look at the suit that he makes... There's just like a gaping hole around the neck. Yeah. Where it's like, why didn't they just shoot, shoot at his neck? 
I was kind of wondering that too. Even like the eye holes are pretty big. Yeah. And I'm like, the one guy comes up behind him and tries to shoot him in the head and it bounces off and ricochets. Just go down to the neck. Right. Shoot him in the spine. Come on, Tony. What do you think you're doing, man? (laughs) Well, Brad, I think that we have rambled enough about Iron Man. We should probably try some of this Tennessee whiskey. Mm. Let's bust out this George Dickel number 12 and see what we think. Sounds great. All right. All right, welcome back. We are going to be trying some George Dickel number 12 today. I don't really understand what the number 12 designation means. I feel like a lot of, not even just whiskeys, but like alcohols in general will yeah. give a number. And you're like, well, was there like 11 failed attempts before this? Sure. I, I don't know. Yeah, it might it might be just their 12th you know iteration or whatever. I thought it maybe it was a 12 year. Yeah. But it's not. It's just, it's called George Dickel Superior number 12. I was going to say, it's only $20. So <laughs> I... probably not <laughs> This is a Tennessee whiskey and it's okay. our first Tennessee whiskey. Yeah. Now, Tennessee whiskey seems to be, for the most part, uh, following the same rules as you would get for bourbon. They just don't like to be called bourbon because they're made in Tennessee. It's kind of a marketing ploy. Right. But one thing that I found that distinguishes Tennessee whiskey from bourbon is before they put it in the barrel, they go through a process where they filter everything through charcoal. Huh. And then it goes into the barrel. And that's the big distinction between Tennessee and Kentucky bourbon. So when it says Tennessee sour mash whiskey, is sour that what they're is, talking about? No, or? sour mash is the same thing you would get with with bourbon. It's just the way that they ferment it. Okay. Um, but even like their mash bill, they have their mash bill listed on their website. It's 84% corn, 8 rye, and 8 barley. So, I mean, you're talking Oh, so like, that's bourbon. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So why don't we go ahead and uh, get into the nose on this, Brad? What are you getting on the nose of this George Dickel 12? You know, I feel like there's – it's one of those things where when you say something, then you start to smell and taste it. But that charcoal that you were talking about, mm-hmm. I feel like that's noticeable on the nose. I'm not – see, I'm not getting anything on that. This does not have a very complex nose to me. It tastes like – it smells like alcohol. Like just ethanol, and I get when I'm really breathing in, it smells a little bit like acetone. Fun fact, Bob, this is alcohol. It is alcohol. <laughs> My nose has not failed me yet. I mean, are you, Brad? Are you picking up any floral or fruity notes at all? No. Yeah, I'm not even getting much of a vanilla or caramel off of this. I'll be honest with you, it does kind of have a smoky uh, smell to it. I kind of said that already with mm-hmm. charcoal. It reminds me a little bit of the monkey shoulder on the nose. The the scotch that we the tried. scotch it does have a little bit of smoke to it and I don't know if that's coming from the charcoal filtering or just from the char on the barrel. Well, why don't you know that, Bob? <laughs> right, <laughs> get better. I would probably give this a four on the nose. Yeah, it's it's not offensive, um, but it's not bringing out anything specific. I'd probably give it a five. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, try a sip of it too. Wow, that tastes like nothing, and then it burns. That's about it. Yeah, th- it's just. The opening taste is an absence of I don't taste any sweetness. 84% corn. Where's the corn, man? Yeah, I was actually just thinking that. When you have that higher mash bill of corn, you would expect there to be some sweetness to it. Yeah. And for the the 8% rye, I mean, it really has some spice on the back end. I don't even know if I'd say spice, though, because I think it's easy to confuse spice spice and alcohol burn. Yeah, the burn of alcohol. Which, we've talked about this before, but the proof of the alcohol does not necessarily indicate the burn. Yeah, this is a 90 proof. This is like a standard bourbon. Right. And the the very first one that we did, the James E. Pepper, was 100 proof. Mm -hmm. And I would say burned less than this. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would probably give this a three on the taste because there just isn't much of one at all. 
I would agree with you. Three? Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to have to go with a three. Three. Finish. Uh, we've, we've talked about it a little bit already, but it just, you have a really harsh alcohol burn on the back of my tongue. Um, the, the lingering aftertaste is not super bitter, but there's just not much there. Yeah. Uh, not complex. I'd probably also give the finish a three. I was going to give it a two. Because it's just the George. burn. The George burn, Dickel is not. Yeah. Come on, George. The burn is a lot more than I expected. Now, on their website, they say that this is a blend of older whiskeys. They don't give an age on it. <laughs> Tell me, Bob, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't taste like an old, like a, it's been aged. Mm-hmm. And we know that, uh, if it doesn't have an age printed on it, it needs to be at least four years old, right? Right. I don't see an age on this. No. Nope. And I have a hard time believing that this has been aged for four years. Yeah. I do see something that says it is the finest quality sipping. <laughs> Wait, without the G? Sippin'? Yeah, just sippin', without a G. <laughs> With an apostrophe. And then in between fine quality sippin', it says, ain't nothing better. Ain't nothing better. I can think of a lot of things better than this. Uh, unfortunately, so, I like drinking good whiskey. I do too. What's the balance on this? I don't... I mean, to be quite honest, it, it was fairly balanced because it was just nothing the whole way through. Yeah, 10 and out then of 10. A, and then a burn. If I'm being honest, I'd probably give it a six on the balance because it just, it's consistent. Yeah, I was going to say it is consistently poor. So five, six. So I come out to a 16 out of 40. Brad, what are you coming out to? Uh, 15. 15. So we are at a 15 and a half on George Dickel 12. I don't know if this was the best introduction to Tennessee whiskey. Yeah, so I'm struggling because I feel like $20 is a decent price point for in your head thinking to yourself, I want to buy something that's decent, but I don't want to spend a lot of money. Yeah. So I'm looking to spend $20 to $25. I would buy Benchmark before I buy this. Mm-hmm. As our scores indicate, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Benchmark. I tried some Benchmark the other night over uh, an ice cube. Mm-hmm. And adding a little bit of water to it really opened it up. I don't know that it would do the same for the Dickel. Yeah, I'm, I'm really struggling. The big thing for me is I can handle a nose and a finish that struggles if you have good taste. Yeah. But if you don't have good taste on the palate while while you are drinking it, it's hard to save. I will say I just added a couple drops of water to this. Mm-hmm. It opens it up significantly. There's a little bit more sweetness to it. But again, I would not I would not recommend this. It is better with water. Um, but if you have to tell someone to water down their whiskey to make it better, you're not in a good place to start out with. Yeah, I just tried the water trick. Not not working for you. I think it the flavors are more there. Yeah, you um, notice a little bit more of the flavor. So overall, Brad, would you recommend? No. I would not recommend either. Guys, uh, again, we're going to throw you back to Benchmark and to our our boy, Very Old Very Barton. Very Old Barton. He is holding up well. Yeah, he really is. And it, it's impressive to be able to make a whiskey that is under the $25 price point. Mm-hmm. That's something you could drink any day. And so Benchmark, Very Old Barton, if you're looking for something cheaper, stick to those. George A. Dickel does not quite make the cut of finest quality sipping. No. Brad, I don't think that our boy Tony Stark would be investing in any of this. I highly doubt (laughs) that his business acumen would lead him to investing in George A. Dickel. Well, why don't we get back to talking a little bit about the movie Iron Man? Let's do it. So that was George Dickel, 12. Uh, not super impressed with that. Brad, how do you feel about it? I feel very poorly. <laughs> but we don't feel poorly about Iron Man. Not at all. I 
looking back at this movie, can we talk for a second about like how it has aged? Sure. Since, sure. you know, it came out in 2008. Yep. The summer of 2008. We're coming up on the summer of 2019. So it's about 11 years old. I think the movie has aged so well. I think that some aspects have aged well. And I think that Marvel, you know, you have to remember this was the first one. In the right. Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're and still exploring what it means to be a part of the Marvel cin- Cinematic Universe. And they're exploring how to develop characters. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. is great in this movie. Everyone knows it. But I also think that he's really lucky that he got to develop a character over... He's been in, like, ten of the movies now. Right. And, you know, the comparison in my mind was, like, when we first saw Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow. And that character was so weird and so fully fleshed out. Johnny Depp actually got nominated for an Oscar for the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I did, did you not know that. Know that. Yeah. Oh. That's how good it was. And I feel like with Iron Man, like we knew Robert Downey Jr. was Iron Man, but he doesn't really have a ton to work with after he gets out of the cave. Yeah. It really just turns into kind of a paint by numbers, like action superhero mm. movie at that point. Yeah. And I thought that his performance in the first half of the film is great, but then he kind of gets caught up in like the mechanics of what we need to do to finish the movie. Right. I'm a superhero now. I'm testing the equipment to be yeah, funny. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I look at the script of this movie and like, I just think that there's quite a bit of stuff that they could have done to improve it. You know, developing Robert Downey Jr.'s character, developing the the female characters in the movie, because there aren't many. I Really? There's two. Yeah. There's well, the reporter at the start of the movie. Yep. Who was also Ricky Bobby's wife. She was Ricky Bobby's wife. Yes. In Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights. Love Interesting. Ricky Bobby. So she's she's in the beginning and she kind of comes back towards the end. Right. And then there's Pepper. Right. And I like again, we've already talked about, we think Gwyneth Paltrow's great. I really liked her performance here. But the way that this movie really kind of objectifies the yeah. female reporter, she like she comes across as I'm tough and I'm independent. And then the next scene, Tony says like one disarming I'm, thing to her. I'm and sleeping she, with Tony. Yeah. Yeah. And you will not see that in an MCU movie now. Right. You know, since they've introduced people like Captain Marvel and Black Widow, you don't... You, I really appreciate that these women have roles that aren't making them just subservient to the men. And, right. And they're actually... Now they're developing them as superheroes. But I also think that those roles... The the interesting thing is that Pepper Potts' position, her role in the movie is subservient to Tony. She's his personal assistant that runs his life, basically. Yeah. But I don't think that they put her in a role where she's truly subservient. You see her throughout the movie in positions of power and influence and and control over Tony, where I, I truly think she has a good role in the movie that is unfortunately portrayed against the role of the reporter mm, that's true you know i think it's just kind of hard when you only have two female characters in the movie and you've already made them like diametrically opposed to each other yeah they're Whereas polar opposites everyone else in the movie's man and you don't really read into their gender because it's just who you know they're so different as characters they all have different character arcs right. and so you're relying on the reporter and gwyneth paltrow to carry the idea of like what it means to be a woman in this movie yeah well, and I think I also struggle because Pepper Potts is a fleshed out character. Right. And the reporter is a caricature. She, yeah, she's so one dimensional. Yeah. And and it's not that I'm necessarily asking a character who has three to four minutes total screen time to have, you know, a giant character arc. Right. But it's disappointing. Sure. Yeah. So that brings us back to the question of the writing and the direction. 
So we've talked about how we don't really think that this has the best Marvel, you know, script and it could have used some work. See, I will, I will say this though. This is still my favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. This is your favorite one. Yes. Interesting. I love this movie. Even with its, I mean, you know, it's not perfect. Yeah. Even with its flaws, you think this is the best one you've seen. I think they went downhill from here. Well, you also haven't seen 10 of them. But I've also seen 10 of them. That's true. <laughs> Good point, my friend. So let's talk a little bit about John Favreau as a director. I think he does a pretty good job. It's not just a sort of serviceable, I put the camera here, the actors do their thing. There are some moments where you really get a sense of what Favreau does as a director. He knows when to lighten the mood. Um, you know, when Tony's testing out his his Mark II, Mark III suit, right. and you've got that sort of like really dumb robot that Tony keeps yelling at. Bringing in that little bit of levity is really helpful. But also, the way that they constructed the whole front end of the movie in the Afghani cave, I thought was... It, it's the kind of thing you don't, you don't see for a while after this in Marvel movies. And the thing about that is that at the start of the movie, you kind of got this picture of Tony as just like a complete jerk. Yeah. Uh, he's just this asinine dude who only cares about himself. And so the comedy that he portrays then feels very shallow and it just comes across as sleazy. Right. Whereas his comedic parts later in the film, once he's kind of had the pivotal change of heart moment, feel more genuine and they genuinely come across as funnier. Yeah, for sure. And again, that's not to say that everything about this script is bad. Like, I think that they give Robert Downey Jr. some really funny lot. Even at the beginning, when the reporter's talking to him, I think she asked him a question like, you know, what do you think about your nickname, The Merchant of Death? Right. And he goes, oh, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Like, it has moments of levity and wit to it that really help to develop the character. And th and that's one of those examples where I think sometimes we talk about script and writing and, and the way things are filmed. But in the end, if you don't have the right actor sure. to fill the role... It doesn't matter how great of a script you write, how brilliant you are at editing yeah. or sound production. If you don't have the right person who has the right eyes and the right control of their face and their their reaction to things, it doesn't matter. And I think Robert Downey Jr. deserves a lot of credit for creating the Iron Man character and honestly for bringing the Marvel Cinematic Universe into success. Yeah, for sure. He, he makes a persona in this movie. There's a really early scene where he's testing out uh, his weapon called the Jericho. Right. And it's one of my favorite shots in the movie with everything exploding behind him. And he just lifts his arms up as like this showman that he is. Yeah. And I think it's phenomenal because it adds so much to the character and his sense of showmanship that you wouldn't get that with another actor. He knows exactly where to make Tony's character traits come out. You've been called the Da Vinci of our time. What do you say to that? Absolutely ridiculous. I don't paint. And what do you say to your other nickname, the Merchant of Death? That's not bad. Let me guess. Berkeley? Brown, actually. Well, Ms. Brown, it's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we've got. I guarantee you the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beans for baby hospitals. You rehearse that much? Every night in front of the mirror before bedtime. I can see that. I'd like to show you firsthand. All I want is a serious answer. 
Okay, here's serious. My old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That's a great line coming from the guy selling the sticks. My father helped defeat the Nazis. He worked on the Manhattan Project. A lot of So Brad, do you have any other favorite Brown. scenes or moments of the movie right? that stick out to you as as worth mentioning? You know, I know we mentioned that uh Vincent, we loved him, but like, man, I don't think we could spend enough time talking about how great that opening scene was. Now, and not only his time in Af- Afghanistan, but even the very opening scene of the movie, you get that sense of Tony's uh, dry humor when he's with the soldiers in the vehicle yep. and, and you see him telling Rhodey, like, like we're going to be in the fun V, you go in the, the humdrum V. <laughs> yeah. And it leads so well into his time in the cave. I don't know why, but saying the cave just reminded me of like Plato's yeah, the cave. Yeah, right, right. And like, in a sense, you see Tony as his weapons are projected in front of him as like, these are bringing death and destruction in the world. And I've, I don't think he ever understood that before. Mm. And so I, I look at his time in the cave and I, I just, that period of the movie could be one of the better movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting, I don't want to call it a political thriller, but it is like a, a wartime thriller. Right. And what bothers me about the end of the movie, the final fight scene with Obadiah, Jeff Bridges, is that when you watch Tony fighting his way out of the cave, the choreography of the shots and the space that you're in, you know exactly where he's at. You know exactly when he has to make a turn, what it takes to get out of the cave. When he gets out of the cave, you see all the weapons kind of laid out that Tony blows up to make his escape. And you as a viewer understand the space you're in. The final fight, they're all over an unnamed city. Right. They're just blowing stuff up. They're lifting up cars, throwing them at each other. They finally go back to the Stark Industries compound. The arc reactor blows up. You don't really understand where they are, what they're doing, where anything is. It's just a uh, sequence of cool things to look at. But to me, that last 15, 20 minutes of the movie, it doesn't add up to anything. It's just like fun stuff blowing up. And I think that's one of my biggest struggles with the MCU is that I feel like more of the movies adhere to that part of Iron Man than the first part of Iron Man. Yeah. And that's, and that's honestly my biggest struggle with the cinematic universe that Marvel has created is that it doesn't feel like any of it really matters, which is, which sounds bad because in the end we're talking about the destruction of the universe by Thanos. Oh, sure. I haven't seen Infinity War. So oh, you got to watch Infinity War. I know. I need to watch it. But, you know, all of these movies are like these grand schemes that I can't even understand. It's kind of like when they talk about the national debt being $20 trillion, <laughs> $30 trillion. So you can't even comprehend Like, that. I can't yeah. even comprehend $20 trillion. I can comprehend $1 million. Yeah, right. I can, I can think about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, if I made this much. And I, I feel like the first part of Iron Man is something that I can emotionally connect with. Yeah. And the second half of Iron Man, which I feel like more of the Marvel Universe has been modeled after, yeah. I just can't emotionally connect with. I, I can't understand the magnitude of what's going on. It, it just feels fake. And So this gets into like uh, script deficiencies, but it also gets into Tony kind of lacks a purpose in the second half of the movie because he comes back from Afghanistan. He has that press conference where he's really transformed as a person and he says... Stark Industries needs to be developing alternative energies that aren't just weapons. You know, I'm committed to using this arc reactor technology to do great things. And then all of a sudden, he finds out that Golmira, the little town that uh, Vincent was from, has been attacked by this terror cell. He goes back and just kills a bunch of terrorists. 
and becomes a weapon himself. And I feel like the movie starts sending kind of mixed signals about what they think of weapons manufacturers, what they think of, you know, being a merchant of death, because Tony kind of falls into that. A good guy with a gun is always a good thing because Tony becomes the good guy with a gun, you know, and and those people in Afghanistan wouldn't have been saved without Iron Man. So it seems like it wants it both ways. It wants Tony to be like this changed person, but then he just ends up becoming a weapon himself. And it kind of falls apart in the end for me because he's no longer sticking to what he learned or his morals. He's not representing what he said he wanted. Exactly. Yeah. So, Brad, we you know, we've talked about how this movie was a trailblazer for the MCU. We've also talked about how it has some flaws to it. We're not quite sure what it's trying to say about Tony Stark's place in the world. He doesn't, he doesn't wrestle with these emotions enough for us. So as we come to wind down, what's your analysis? What's your evaluation of this movie? What kind of a score would you give it in the grand scheme of things? The reason I love this movie is because it's not just a superhero movie. It's a movie about a flawed human being. Yeah. It's a movie about Tony Stark who moves from a place of affluence and wealth to realizing that that means nothing. Mm -hmm. That for Vincent, the only thing that matters is getting back to his wife and kids. Yeah. And Tony doesn't have anybody who cares about him to go back to. And so for me, there was a hope that he would go back and and be with Pepper Potts and and create a life of his own bringing good into the world and you don't get that yeah and so i and i think that this movie is phenomenal in what it does i think so many parts of this movie work super well but watching it 11 years later knowing what i know about the marvel cinematic universe it almost makes me sad that i feel like they they were hitting on something in the first half of this movie that could have been phenomenal yeah but they chose to focus the rest of their cinematic universe on the second half of the movie, which clearly they didn't make the wrong decision in a monetary standpoint. Right, right. They've made billions yes. of dollars off of this. But for me, as somebody who cares about story and character development, I struggle with the direction that they went. If we're looking at just Iron Man alone, throw out the rest of the cinematic universe, I still love this movie. Yeah. I still really enjoy it. Watching it this time, sixth, seventh time, I thought that there's a lot of parts of it that still hold up extremely well 11 years later. Yep. Um, are, are we getting into final scores? I think we should. But I also think that this, the the problem for me is that I want to score it as a superhero movie. Right. Like, And in, in terms of – I've seen some bad superhero movies. Yes. Like this is at least an eight or a nine on the scale of superhero movies. But when you're just comparing it as a movie, right. I really do think that it has some glaring plot flaws. And like you said, the first half of this movie shares so much DNA with The Dark Knight. Yeah. It's so grounded and rooted in reality. And the second half is like, I can fly. I can go to Afghanistan in a, a few hours flying my cool suit, blowing stuff up and fighting Jeff Bridges, that the movie really does fall off for me. So like, I think if we're scoring it against movies in general yeah i'd give it a seven i still think it's a good movie but i have to keep in mind that i'm not just scoring it against superhero movies i'm scoring it against you know the godfather and the tree of life and all these other ones that we've watched i just want to make so many jokes about tree of life and the funny <laughs> thing is i i love that movie but yeah. i hated that movie absolutely i would give it a seven and a half yeah uh, like it was a it's still a solid movie I think the struggle with the movie is that it's unevenly weighted. The first half of the movie 
I would give about a nine and a half. Oh, for sure. And the second half about a five to six. Yeah. And so I end up in the seven and a half and eight eight range. Um, but yeah, so I would probably f- finish it out with a seven and a half. Highly recommend it. If yeah. somehow you haven't seen it, <laughs> yeah, go watch. Iron it's Man. a fun movie to yes. watch. You know, like you're not going to get a ton of like social commentary or whatever, but it's fun. It's a good movie to watch. It brings up some issues, but it kicks off this renaissance of superhero movies that we have now. And they wouldn't have happened without Robert Downey Jr. in this movie. Whatsoever. Yeah. Great movie. Great fun. Go watch it if you somehow haven't seen it. Like That would be ridiculous. And before you go watch it, we're going to send you to our social media accounts. Guys, we need all the help we can get. We are still a, a new podcast. So if you are on Instagram... Come find us on Instagram at Film Whiskey. Same handle for Twitter at Film Whiskey. We're on Facebook, Film and Whiskey Podcast. Or you can give us a call on our call in line. We want to include your comments on the air. Give us a call. The number is 216-800-5923. That's 216-800-5923. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.